This is Jack Donovan, author of The Way of Men, and you are listening to Start the World. All right, my guest today is Eric Storzen. Eric is a, an old Norse philologist, a writer, and an artist from Southwest Norway, who's now based in New York. He's the creator of an interesting podcast titled Brute Norse. And you can find his blog at brutenorse.com. His take on the lore is not only artful and informative, but he also has a good sense of humor. In fact, I invited him on this podcast uh, because he posted an episode about Valhalla titled Fight for Your Right to Party. And uh, I, just, I actually just listened to it while I was working out uh, right before this podcast. And I laughed out loud at the introduction. It was really fantastic. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. <laughs> So I guess first, I, I have a few things actually from that podcast, I think, that I want to talk about. But uh, uh, let's talk about your idea. You call it what you do, uh, Norse, uh, Nordic futurism or Scandi, future, Scandi futurism? Yeah, Scandi futurism. That's, uh, that's the term I cooked up uh, to describe what I do. Okay. And, uh, and uh, one of your slogans is, is walking backwards into the future. Yeah, that's which correct. I really liked as well. So can you can you talk about that and talk about that whole concept and what you mean by that? Yeah, uh, so Scandifuturism really uh, originated, well, if I can say that it has one single origin, because I really don't think it does. I think it comes from many different things converging or like popping out of the ground, like, like roots almost, uh, or rhizomes, if you're familiar with the, the term, like plant-based term, hops grow like rhizomatically so that they pop out of the ground all over the place and uh and, but it's one plant and that's how i think about scandifuturism as well it, it has in one sense it has some very clear origins uh but not all of it is clear to me as of now and i think a lot of it just kind of appears as i go as well but yeah, in short, Scandifuturism was basically an alibi that I needed. I needed a term just to describe what I did. If somebody ever asked me, um, like, what the concept of Brute Norse is, like, is, is it an academic podcast, for example? Well, yeah, in one regard, but it's also, uh, I also work a lot deliberately with fiction. There's a lot of, like, uh, fictional devices. Uh, in some aspects, it's also museum education, but I probably have a lot of the discussions that museums like that they want to say that they want to have, but act don't actually do. And uh, there's an aspect of magic to it, but also about trying really to uh, reinvent the way that we uh, make the past relevant to us. You know, uh, so it's maybe incidental that it's Scandi futurism specifically because I am Scandinavian. I feel very uh, rooted in my own culture, uh, but I want to get away from the old kind of trite paradigms and aesthetics of the whole uh, way that the past and the, the Scandinavian deep past is presented, because it's uh, it can be quite and. Uh, like the, the aesthetic that follows it is also very bad taste very often more often than not perhaps and that's i think that the the, the medium uh to paraphrase podcast that i'm a big fan of actually uh, word studies they recently had an episode called uh, the medium is the message 
and I think that that's that that's almost a slogan in itself that I could probably really stand by, and that's the whole uh, reason. Yeah, well, Bert Norris has a very deliberate aesthetic, I should say, and people think that I I go through this with some degree of ironic distance, but uh, I don't think that there's any distance there. I just use humor very deliberately as uh, as a means of uh, uh, expressing my proximity to the subject, rather, I would actually say. I don't know if that was rambling. It probably was, but... That's fine, but that's what <laughs> podcasts are for. Have you ever listened to, to Rogan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah no... Um, Aesthetics are really, really important. And I think that uh, that's one of the things that uh, interested me about what you were doing is that uh, so much of people, you know, many people who talk about modern uh, paganism and, and uh, you know, whether they're talking about the historical side or whatever people are doing now, uh, it's, it's old and not old in like a, a good way. Uh, it's yeah. old in like uh, they're re there's this 19th century aesthetic that the, they're, you know, all the art that they're using and everything is coming from like the 19th century kind of exploration of this kind of thing. And it's kind of done, you know, it's not very exciting. Yeah. And I think that if something, if you're going to have a culture that's going to be alive, it has to be alive now and it has to be relevant. And, and I think that uh, one of the things that you actually mentioned in your uh, podcast uh, about Valhalla actually uh, was about uh, you know the skulls and the the, uh, the warriors and so forth, and it, it reminded me of a discussion I had recently uh, with someone. Maybe something I read about uh, the idea that uh, poets make heroes, and to a certain yeah. sense that you know that we it, poets are part of the process. That that they need to be kind of aligned with that heroic culture to a certain extent, because otherwise, then you you don't. Because those guys a lot of times don't write um, or create art, and so if you do, if you want to have heroic art and you want to have heroic uh, poetry and all that, you need you need a Homer, you need you yeah. need a Homer to go with your your Achilles. Yes, exactly, and um, I think that people people often forget that a lot of what we see, you know, coming down to us that that we we tend to see as one unified image is something that has been created over time, not just uh, as scholars interpreted the sources, you know, because that's also an aspect to consider here, but um, that the day of Valhalla didn't come in one finished package. It was actually created as they went along, probably uh, from a meandering, uh, you know, stream of different sources, some probably very surprising. And uh, the poets were definitely very instrumental in creating and articulating that myth and how that myth was used and how that served to uh, promote the heroic ideology of the Iron Age, uh, Viking Age uh, warrior elite. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and, and obviously, like one of the other things you were saying in that podcast was that you know, there's only a few few sources, and so they're kind of arguing about what Valhalla is or, or whatever. And yeah. uh, you know, I was I, I've been studying a lot of the Greek material recently, and uh, you have more of that in the Greek material because you have the records. So you have like you know you have uh, Polydorus, and then you have uh, you know Hesiod, and you have all these different people who have slightly different versions of the myths and slightly different versions of everything. And if 
if you had that for the whole Germanic period, you'd have all these different versions of different guys writing things down, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, because I actually, I was talking to a friend about this, who's been uh, helping me out actually researching the, um, uh, the future episodes of the, of this podcast series that I'm, I'm doing about Valhalla. And, uh, I had to reach out to him. Uh, uh it's Michael Moynihan from, uh, from, uh, you know, of Tyr yeah. fame. Uh, yeah, 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 that. yeah. Yeah. And he's, you know, he has a PhD in, in, uh, in Germanic philology. Yeah. And so I reached out to him to ask him about a lot of, um, uh, a lot of the, the kind of continental Germanic material. Mm -hmm. And uh, we made some startling discoveries along the way. Uh, for instance, like the, uh, the earliest sources we have, and that doesn't mean, of course, that that, you know, is the earliest, you know, the, the first time these ideas were articulated. That is probably not the case either. But uh, the first sources we have for this kind of idealized, uh, kind of like idealization, the transcendental, Hall are Christian heroic poems uh, from like recently converted Germanic peoples who, uh, and it's probably a, a conversion strategy at that point, you know, you know, you, the best place to be is the Mead Hall. You want to, you know, the, the it's place above all is the Mead Hall with the warriors, with the guys, with the, with the warlord. Well, yeah. What's, what's, what's better than the warlord? Yeah. Well, you know, it's like like painting Jesus as this warlord, you know, the Drichten, you know, in the in the in the other world. Of course, right. it's a very anachronistic kind of image if you see it from like a, like a like a like a Christian th theology. But uh, I think they were more concerned about the pragmatism rather than the fine print of of Christian eschatology. But uh, but yeah, no, it's an interesting world uh, that you know it'll be interesting to to see how that unfolds in future episodes as well yeah yeah no i i've always that's kind of always been my thing is uh, future primitive uh is i've always liked that i always like the uh there's this spot in the 1960s where they were kind of rediscovering the classics and you have all this kind of like Osama noguchi which i think is his museum is in brooklyn i went there when i was in high school or the bronx or mm. something like that and, uh, you know, this Japanese guy, but, you know, they're making like these sculptures out of stone that look like bones. And, uh, you know, people were trying to rediscover the primitive in, in, you know, in a way, but in a very, mo through a modernist lens. Yeah. And I, I love that whole, that whole period of stuff artistically, uh, just because it's kind of future, you know, like future primitive. It's, it's uh, a little bit of both. I mean, if it's kind of the era that both spaghetti westerns came from and also, um, uh, like the samurai movies that were basically the yeah. same at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting actually, because uh, that combination of old and new is, uh, is also essential, uh, essential to my concept of Scandifuturism and is also what I mean when I say walking backwards into the future. Uh, I sort of like, uh, like the, my use of kind of uh, absurdist and surrealist imagery is both my uh, reinvention of pre-Christian scaldic metaphors, which are s severely surreal and often deliberately humorous. We, it ju we just don't get the punchlines because we don't expect them to be there. But when you really look and expect them, you really see them. 
uh, and uh, in my content, I really try to tear down that uh, tear down that wall between now and then, and create a sense of historical confusion sometimes. So by comparing, I, I'll, I'll say that I live in the new Roman Empire because I live in the United States, and I'm a Romanized barbarian. Uh, I I think that you you're into you mentioned similar concepts in your writing i think oh yeah i yeah, mean yeah. we're we're definitely we're definitely in a in some kind of new rome it might be a global rome i'm not sure but uh yeah you know it's it's definitely some kind of uh empire like that because it's a cosmopolitan society i mean obviously you're in, in new york city and and uh yeah uh, and most people live the internet makes everything kind of cosmopolitan in, in yes of course way. it's it's, yeah. it's the death of subculture uh very often though maybe not that maybe that's not exactly true but it finds new expressions certainly not the same as it was but uh, no yeah but yeah it's it's funny because uh you know i have to have to admit that i am you know in one sense very cosmopolitan even though i often insist that i am not <laughs> uh, but i but i'm also i don't think that i think people who say that you know they're anti-modernists or something like that they have a they have a bigger issue because I, I've never made any claim that I am that. I think that I've come to admit that there are many aspects to me that are very modern um, for good or for better or worse. But um, I often have this argument with my wife, you know, because she will say that I'm so Americanized. Uh, and I, I will always deny it. I will never be. American, <laughs> you know? You know, I'm more Finnic than American. I'm not even, an, you know, an ounce of Finn in me. You know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're just forced to kind of deal with it. That's, that's the world we live in. And well, it all seeps in when I was traveling in Germany, I talked to some of the guys and they, we they have spoke to backwards into, oh, they, they, they spoke, uh, uh, English. I expected them to have an English accent to their, you know, English and, uh, everybody in Germany speaks perfect American English and uh it, or pretty near uh people i talk to and i'm like well where did you learn uh your accent where do you where did you learn english and the one guy told me family guy <laughs> yeah, no. i'm like i guess you can't avoid certain things they you know they kind of seep outward yeah it's uh it's strange uh but also like to get back to that uh you know that that is the romanized barbarian in a way you know it's yeah. uh uh because i think that uh being brought up in norway i have a certain way of thinking about things and it's not i think that i don't think exactly like somebody does on the opposite end of the world but you know we because humans are intelligent we are pragmatic we're able to entertain many different thoughts and we are uh, cognitively dissonant more more than we'd like to admit, probably. Uh, we're able to suppress uh, little notions and nuances, but of course, you know, uh, growing up in a certain area or whatever and, and having a certain language, uh, not to go full on sapper work theory, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it does affect you. There are certain like atmospheres or certain noises or sounds or something that are very dear to my heart uh, that are, that just are with me all the time. And with Scandifuturism, I think that that allowed me to, to you know, as Heidegger did, I guess, like like don his lederhosen 
kind of uh, and and just turn these little gestures into these uh, almost rituals of either cultural celebration or like uh, elevate very mundane things into kind of a spiritual significance, you know. Yeah, yeah. So no, it's a coping mechanism also for me to, uh, you know, since I am estranged from everything that I find familiar, uh, uh, you know, I can, I can entertain myself by, by, you know, pretending that these are profoundly important spiritual concepts over here in the new world, like, like being able to get barley flour or something like that is a huge hassle, which is a staple of Norwegian cooking, for example, okay. bullshit like that. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's part of, uh, I mean, really, uh, people, I mean, obviously when you're talking about G Germanic things or, uh, uh, you know, Scandinavian things or whatever, I mean, it's, it's obviously far beyond this, but people always talk about the Vikings and obviously that's what Vikings were traveling everywhere yeah. and, uh, you know, it come making contact with many different kinds of people. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, uh, yeah, the, the, um, ah, I lost my trail of thought, but, um, I think that mean, many people, especially people who consider themselves to be kind of like have a pagan outlook on the world, considers it a grave sin to have some sort of morbid or perverted fascination with the modern world, even though they might have it. It's sort of like something that they feel like they shouldn't have. Um, I've sort of tried to relish in, in the fact that I live in the age that I do and, and just sort of participate in it uh, from an observational sort of standpoint at the very least. And uh, Yeah, well, I mean, you're alive now and they were alive then. Yeah. You know, I mean, like they lived in their world and we have to live in ours, whatever that is. And then you can take whatever you want with you or whatever, but uh, it's you know, we have to live the lives we have. I mean, I, I know so many people in that, uh, you know, people who call themselves pagan or whatever. I mean, I think they really just want to be 12th century farmers. And, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> you know, and I'm, uh, I'm not really about that. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not wrong. Uh, you know, like if you want to be yeah, a farmer, no. that's cool. That's cool. Being a farmer is good. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, mean, I think that's, it's, that's not all of the culture, even those people's culture. No, exactly. Uh, a lot of people also who people who are very uh, pessimistic, specifically about the modern world. Uh, you know, by all means, there's every reason to be. But uh, but a lot of the people who sort of idealize kind of the these kind of heroic aristocratic values of the past, I think they tend to project themselves as part of these elites. Right. You know? You're never the um, you're never the uh, thrall, like they no. they're never the thrall. <laughs> you're never you're never the you know the the peasant you know in, in the least sunny part of the valley who doesn't even own his own property, right? Know? But that's who most of my ancestors probably were, um, and I think that that was like when I started, uh, you know, coming of age, and I. Uh, I came into contact with uh, with philosophies that uh, that were like like traditionalist literature and stuff like that. Right, I could never right. really, I could re never really uh, go all the way with that stuff because I felt that there was a big elephant in the room, and that was that all of the folklore 
and all of the folk culture that I that I adored and that I really found interesting belonged to the to the lower strata of society mm-hmm. very often, you know. Uh, and uh, and they didn't seem to be my of course there's every, everybody has an uncle or aunt who says, Oh, we're descended from this and this king or whatever. Oh, everybody's descended everybody's, from Charlemagne, man. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, everybody wants in on the, that big uh, they want, right. want a slice of that aristocratic cake. Right. But I always thought like there's something nice to just be that, you know, simple, you know, grain farmer or cobbler, you know, in some fjord or something like that. And so that was what I was really attracted to. I, you know, people may assume, you know, because I, uh, because of the medium of, of, uh, uh, of what I do, you know, the expression that I, I choose with Brute Norse that, uh, I am some kind of like the, the whole like Scandinavian futurist thing is some sort of like urbanite phenomenon, you know, right. that is like this, you know, it's just because, you know, I'm a, like a pencil neck who lives in the city or something like that, that I do what I do. But, you know, that's, as a matter of fact, you know, I, that's not how it was before I moved to the US. I, I used to live kind of semi off grid in a cabin in the woods. Um, I had to carry my own water and stuff like that. So, if I had continued that lifestyle, probably my visual expression would have been somewhat different, but um, it's not because I am like, I, I shun the countryside and I'm, I don't want to do physical work that, I, that I've chosen this. I, I, I think that the expression I have chosen is specifically to demonstrate that um, if you want to really go forward with an like with a productive, a constructive interpretation of paganism, it has to somehow conform uh, and, and, and harmonize with the actual world that you are living in. Yes. And it's not as if, as if anything that, that, that the pre doesn't apply to, to the rest of the world. All of these principles are alive in, in everything we do, whether you're in the countryside, you know, uh, uh, tilling the fields, which is you know nice and idyllic, and I on on certain days I wish that that's what I was doing. But it's also right here in the big city, like right here on Manhattan. Like when I go outside, you know, it's it's full of full of mysteries and strangeness and uh, and eldritch things. And uh, I think that I happen to to think that my my interpretation of the Norse sources as kind of like a wellspring of philosophical thought probably uh, uh, stems from the fact that I am in many regards, deeply cynical and pessimistic in many regards. So, uh, so I have a very, uh, I have a, I have sort of a, a dark interpretation of the mythology, uh, which probably is, you know, it's uh, just how, how I see things, but I tend to think that, the big city, for example, is one extreme of, of the same ideology that the gods represent, basically, because the gods are manufacturers, they're innovators, they're artists. Uh, they take something that is raw, just elemental, that exists in nature, and then they create something from it that did not exist before. You know, the entire yeah. universe, the, the natural universe is an example of that, actually, in the mythology, if you take, you know, the, yes. the myth of origin seriously, you know. Yes. This, this was not how things were originally. There was a completely different order that existed before this. Right. Uh, the gods are not in complete and total control. 
and to a certain degree, the to a certain degree, the the nature of reality and the universe is also a riddle even to the gods. You know, Odin is always trying to figure out like the mystery of this thing that he, at least partially, has created himself, like a sculptor in a way. Um, and the crisis of the gods, like with Ragnarok and stuff like that, is is reflected also in the crisis that that humanity faces all the time. I think that that the unsustainability of the of the mega city is more of a confirmation of these mythological concepts than than something that is at at odds with being a pagan. Yeah, I mean the, the yeah, another thing that you've said before was that. Uh, which I've also talked about, and I even actually talked about this over over lunch with uh, Edward Thorson one time, oh, is that, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, is that uh, a lot of people look at this kind of thing as just nature worship. And 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 you had said, no, I don't think so. And I, f mm. I feel the same way about it in terms of, uh, you know, yeah, if you look at the creation story, or really any, you know, creation story, because, you know, all through, Indo-European things, a lot of things line up. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you're talking about a god looking at raw materials and creating something from it according to his own vision. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, that's what man does always. You know, man's always taking natural resources and turning them into his own vision and reordering the world according to his own liking. Yes. And then also, but you know, going back to what you said about uh, Odin, always knowing that it could fall apart at any time and trying to figure out the mystery of it because you, know, you don't know everything. I mean, uh, this virus thing is a perfect example about humanity yeah. think that they having, thinking that they have everything figured out and then realizing that they don't. You know, yes. it, it creates new mysteries. The, the, the thing that you create creates new mysteries to a certain extent. Yeah, and, and it's also significant that some of the things that the gods use to create certain things, like, like you have uh, the Fenris wolf, you know, who mm. is, uh, you know, not directly, but indirectly a product of, of, of the actions of the gods. It's a, it's a reaction towards, like, divine behavior, you might say. Mm -hmm. uh, when they create uh, the, the chains that shackle the Fenris wolf, Mm -hmm. They take all sorts of things like like the like the, the beards of women, the roots of the mountains, uh, uh, the the rumble of cats walking. Right. You know, cat, uh, that, that's like my that. favorite one. <laughs> yeah, um, and these things don't apparently exist in the world anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, they take things and they deplete those resources in 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 order to create the things that they do sometimes. And um, and this seems to have a, an adverse effect on the on the stability of the universe, which isn't like uh, if the gods just eliminate all like opposition, the universe is still going to cave in because there's like there are fundamentally important things uh, on the opposite side of the so-called spectrum there. Mm -hmm. But likewise, if the gods sort of fail in their mission, you know, if if nature succeeds in what it has to do. Then we're all fucking screwed, you know. We're we're gonna we won't be able to to live because we need houses. We need to be able to to cook, and we can't live like like beetles out in the in the woods, you know. If we could, that would be nice, but that's not the sort of creature humanity is. Um, but yeah, I think that that is uh, uh, this whole whole virus COVID thing is a great example of that. Great example of what I call the trollish, which is just 
the imminence of nature that is always seeking to do what is natural. The virus doesn't have any motivation to go out and kill people. Right. But like, but if you go to like Scandinavian folklore, you have the trolls and stuff like that, kind of passively accumulating uh, whatever they get. You know, a troll doesn't go out and like slay dragons and take their treasure uh, like a hero would do. A troll just kind of accumulates treasure because they whack heroes who try to kill them, you know? Right. And, and like, and it's just kind of, they kind of like their power is just based on kind of passive sprawl, like moss or something. And if they take something, it's just like an opportunistic niche that they're filling. They're just filling a void. And, yeah, well, that's uh, what animals do, really. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that in that regard, like the, the, what I call the trollish, uh, which the virus is a great example of, is just like the, the virus doesn't have any motivation to kill us. It's just like it just happens that we are excellent at providing grounds for it to, to reproduce and spread rapidly all over the planet. Um, but having said that, you know, paganism is not, you know, I, I contended it is not like nature worship, which is a ter term that I absolutely hate. Me too. But if you go, if you just look at the big picture, zoom far enough out, culture, you know, which is always, uh, as we imagine, you know, straight lines, squares, uh, architecture, grids, it's, you know, you have a lot of control on a micro level, but the more you zoom out, the more chaotic it starts to seem, and the more like it starts to pattern in odd ways. So nature and culture, you know, culture resides within nature in one regard, you know, but, but not in the sense of like, you know, keep, don't, don't, don't touch the sacred bush, don't, uh, you know, it's thunder. It's not like this is scared of the thunder god because you know it's uh, this because you respect nature sort of thing. Uh, it's more that ultimately everything must return to the fundamental principles that are like that of which reality is comprised, and that must be nature. You know, the yeah. gods cannot escape nature. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the. Um... It's it's chaos. Nature is chaos to us. It may not be chaos to nature, but uh, it's it's chaos to us. You know, to a certain degree. Have you ever seen? The, it's like it's like a it's like a viral image. I think, not not correct to say say it's a meme, but, but there's a there's a viral image that spreads around social media, which I actually thought was uh, interesting for once. Usually, these kind of um, these sorts of like images are kind of platitudes that don't that aren't really that deep or interesting right but this one i found it was just like it's it's nice and simple it's uh one is a uh it's a picture of like um of like a spruce twig yeah and it's just you know it's, it branches out and it says order and uh the next is of course all the all the needles of of the of the spruce uh, spruce twig have been lined up and measured and you know they're arranged according to their to their to their length and stuff like right. that like ordered up uh in human intuition likes to think that that is like they have ordered you know the the, right. the chaos of, of nature but that is chaos chaos is is ripping off the the pine needles and lining them up like in, totally like inorganically uh in some schema so that we can measure how long each and every one of them are well, like, we are chaos sort of, to nature, and nature is chaos to us. To us, <laughs> yeah. If you, 
if yeah. you look at uh, at at, uh, at the role of humanity or gods from the perspective of like like giants or trolls or or nature itself, mm-hmm. you know we are tremendous pests. Oh, totally. Like, we're we're coming. We're just they're just trying to have a picnic, you know, or, or like just do nothing, doing doing what comes natural. And we right. come up there and we rip up the lawn. We you know we we piss in their drinks, you know. We don't <laughs> contribute anything to them apart from you know creating perhaps a niche here and there that they didn't have in the first place from which they can like piggyback ride on or something like that like right a species can spread to another continent and become invasive or whatever oh yeah 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 no, we, we we're definitely invasive in, in our own way but that's that's <laughs> yeah. our job that's our prerogative you know nature has to come up with something to stop us which it, it tries yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> but that's why the gods created us too <laughs> that, <that's laughs> <what I'm... laughs> So in terms of your own uh, practice, I mean, are, are you, uh, I mean, do you consider yourself a pagan or are you just interested in paganism or? Uh, yeah, I think that uh, like I've, I've, I've uh, had many discussions with myself about this and uh, you know, I've, I've done all, I think that my spirituality is quite eclectic. You know, mm-hmm. I, I have a very like big, like long-term perspective of, of of this and i consider myself in some regards a kind of post-pagan you know okay so like when uh, when <laughs> you're too old... hip for pagan that was so last year <laughs> yeah, yeah just to feed my critics even more like, like saying <laughs> that this iric storson is this this hipster pagan <laughs> but anyway like um but no seriously uh when I was, because my whole, some people get into paganism because they, they bought like, uh, they went to an occult bookshop or something and they bought a book and also true. My interest in this became because when I went to, when I was a child, I went to school or my mother would tell me stories or read books about Norse mythology to me. Mm-hmm. And it, I, you know, I grew up with this understanding that this is like, this is the culture I come from in one regard. And I already, I think it's the episode with, uh, with Brad Taylor Hicks. Uh, you okay, say yeah. that, that your concept of pagan was like ancient Greece or something like that. Yeah, just the, the, f- the word to me, I've been like, that's, that's big pagan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, that's, and that made me think uh, of like, what is my earliest, like my image. I, and I think this is my mother's fault. Um, my image of the word God we are always told that when, when Western people hear the word God, we think of this, you know, big man with a beard, you know, up in the sky or whatever. I think that's just the noun God to me as a child, very early on, like four or five years old, at least, had the connotation of something like Zeus. Okay, yeah. Or like Dionysus or something. Yeah. From, but, but that's what it was to me. Um, but I didn't, I can't, can't honestly, like my grandfather was some sort of like heretical pantheist who would like go to church to listen to Bach and then drop a, you know, a button in the collection box. But nothing until I was like later, you know, started getting kind of into counterculture and, and started thinking uh, very negatively of Christianity and stuff like that, <laughs> that I started thinking of myself as a pagan. You know, I was into black metal in my teens, stuff like that. But then... I started studying academically um, Old Norse at a university level. And uh, by then I was already thinking of, of myself as, if not Asatru, at least, you know, pagan. 
you know, a polytheist. And I went through the whole thing with reconstructionism and I had a period where I was very confident that if we just do, like, if we just go deep enough scientifically with this, we can piece it together somehow. We can create an apparatus that if we can make ourselves believe it, we can make somebody else believe it and kickstart it, you know? Yeah, auto, yeah. I this is that. almost this kind of like Lazarusian, uh, uh, like a, a necro pagan necromancy in a way, you know? Where you artificially <laughs> engineer a pain. And I, I had friends who were like these kind of anti-modernist types um, who were really like into, you know, uh, just, you know, planting potatoes and doing all sorts of stuff. Like it was a brief, uh, brief detour into animal sacrifice and things like that, which originated actually as like just purely practical, um, uh, how should I say, and teaching each other how to slaughter lambs. Because okay. that's a useful skill. If you want to be self-sufficient in Norway, you, sheep are a great idea. And we started doing these like slaughtering courses where we teach each other, each other how to, to slaughter. And then we're just kind of like, uh, it's not economically viable for this farmer to actually do this. And it's kind of a hassle. And there's a lot of risk involved when you're teaching people who have absolutely no clue how to do this. You know, it can get kind of messy. Yeah. Uh, and so like for different reasons, both ethical and others, you know, it just became like we, we go to our friend and we, uh, we slaughter one sheep mm -hmm. and we eat it. Mm -hmm. And then we have like other things. We have gestures and toasts and we start to almost like ritualizing it. Like we, we drink to the person who was responsible for slaughtering the animal, you know? Or we will place like the head like up in the up in like a ridge in the mountain or something like that mm -hmm. as a as a token of gratitude to like some unnamed set of powers, some gods, but we were all very like academically inclined. So we didn't want to say this god or that god. And it's also this idea that the line is broken. Mm -hmm. So we try to pick up where somebody else left off, but the signal is kind of lost but can we find the frequency you know to to maybe regain that because we don't know like are, are the gods sleeping are they dead do they even exist uh, i really like Jung's, like... the way young approached it to, um, i i actually don't like his essay on on, on votan yeah uh, i don't like a lot of what it says about votan but uh yeah um, it, it, one of the things he talks about is it being a channel that's uh, like an archetype is a channel that has been run through many, many times over the history. And, you know, you're yeah. just kind of waiting for the water to flow back through it. And mm -hmm. yeah. I like, I like that idea a lot um, as a metaphor. And uh, I don't know, I've definitely th think is in some of my practices and, and so forth that I've, I've done, you can find something, but then, you know, because you do a bunch of research and I'm, I'm actually, I have an essay about this in the book that I'm writing uh, right now is that, uh, you know, it's kind of our fate at this point to be able to see all of history. Yeah. That's part of what we can see. So that, you know, lends to a certain skepticism and a certain, uh, you know, like, well, I can see when that word changed to that word. I mean, that's what you do, right? I mean, uh, yeah. you, you can follow all these things and 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 see well okay well here's the continuity in this idea and that that's kind yeah. of what i'm interested in now is the is the continuity of the ideas and uh because 
the same ideas have been around for a long time. They just mm -hmm. get different names. Yeah. And so the same idea is still there. Yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the stuff that I was, uh, that I learned when I was, because uh, I had aspirations to become a serious academic at some point. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I don't know. I, I just didn't have it in me. I didn't, I, I just didn't want to be in the academic, you know, rat race, you know, it's so competitive and I couldn't really be myself. Uh, not because anybody was censoring me, but because, you know, ac academia does not, uh, encourage people who, um, who want to do things that are kind of out of the box, you know? Right. So, um, breaking out of it allowed me to do more art and stuff like that and use that as, as a medium to teach. But academia taught me that source criticism is fundamental to try to understand what, like how people thought in the past. Maybe it's not too useful if you want to create something new, um, but it's, a useful, it's useful to sift through for frames of reference because the deeper you go there uh, within source criticism, often the weirder it gets. You get really weird concepts that you're not really sure how these can be applied to, uh, you know, to anything really necessarily, but because they're so, you know, localized, so indigenous in a way that it's hard to, to create a medium where people are on board with it because you have to be kind of born into the whole tradition in a way. Sure. You know, but, uh, but yeah, I think that, the. With uh, with Brute Norris and Scandi Futurism, and probably really like it, this it comes back to like what are the roots of like my Scandi Futurist concepts? You know, mm -hmm. it's probably like one of the roots here is that like I had friends who were like deeply yearning for for like uh, an indigenous religiosity uh, that comes that only comes down to us uh, through. Uh, anthropological works of like of local folklore. Mm -hmm. and stuff like that uh records of all the peculiar shit that people in the villages used to believe um weird folk tales uh and you know really really technical studies of pre-christian religion christianity folk religiosity in the 17 18th 1900s um all of that stuff and all of this just comes together and the the result is that they're kind of they're looking for uh, the gods that uh, that Christian polemics uh, Christian polemicists call blind and deaf. You know, if you read the sagas, they they're always going like, "Ha, you believe in this blind and deaf god?" You know, that's what these Bond villain missionaries are saying. You know? <laughs> and uh, and I was thought about that. Like, well, I don't know. Are the either the gods are blind and deaf or sleeping? Or there's just somewhere else. Just or maybe, maybe I'm misunderstanding the whole thing. Maybe it's like, because I don't know. I don't know what a god is apart from the narrative. You know, the myths say like the god is like a, like something like a person, but but infinitely more greater and more mysterious and very powerful. But I don't know like what the nature of the gods are. So what I do is I kind of like go out and I try to look for the gods not like the specific like Frey, freya thor but uh i'm trying to kind of like channel or identify an unknown god and that's actually like i side note but i have a 
me and a friend are trying to compile a like a Scandi futurist grimoire. Okay. And and it will contain like one plan is that it will contain a spell for like inviting the presence of of an unknown god, identifying mm-hmm. an an unknown god. It sounds very kooky and very goofy. Uh, but I had like yeah, I came across like an effigy of an owl, like in a, in a park close to my house mm-hmm. there, where I would go like just to like be close to plants or whatever because they're, they're deficient in, in New York City. So, and I just found it like kind of hidden behind a bush. So I just decided one day that I'm going to start like giving it pennies and stuff like that. And, and yeah, that's part of my practice, I guess, like doing things like that, paying the troll toll. My spirituality is very chthonic because the, 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 the city is just like this big sponge of bad juju, right? So like, yeah, so it has to be full of these kind of like, yeah, goblin-like trollish entities that live in your garbage chute and between between the floors of your apartment building or whatever, you know? Dude, they're just sure, homeless this- people. well i mean living in cities i mean it's not a far you don't have to do a leap of the imagination if if you've lived in a city and i've lived in a bunch of big cities and and, uh to be like that person crouched under that thing out there with the gnarled face and the to imagine that person is a different creature especially because they would just be dirtier like back in the day i mean they'd even yes. be dirtier and more malformed <laughs> and and uh, you can imagine thinking that they're a different race you know i like to think of that as bridge trollism because you know yeah. you'll often go like in in like subway stations or underpasses and there will be like this homeless guy hustling you you know oh yeah i've i've like i'll i'll be standing like deep in thought like waiting for the lights to change and this guy will come up behind me and just like scare the living daylights out of me and uh, and I like I feel like I'm hostage. Like I, I have no choice but to give this guy a dollar. Like or else like just so he will leave me alone because I'm so unsettled by the sudden appearance of this uh, this figure. And there is a, there is a parallel there between that and trolls because trolls are trolls are very marginal. You know, bums and homeless people are marginal. Mm-hmm. The trolls are also in a way an an image of trolls dwell within us all in some regard. Trolls are the other within ourselves, and trolls are shunned, and people find them disgusting and scary and, and antisocial and disruptive. And I am sympathetic to trolls. And I also, so, you know, I'm somewhat sympathetic to, to all sorts of vagrants and outlaws and homeless people too. Why, why should I not be sympathetic to them? But I don't know, like, I don't know, it doesn't mean that I will give them my entire fortune or anything like that. You know, I'm right. probably very stingy. When, you know, comparatively speaking when it comes to to beggars and vagrants but it's probably i think that that's not the right way to help them but um but yeah no there is definitely something trollish about the about the homeless yeah not to dehumanize them or anything but uh but people people dehumanize each other all the time and the the troll is also in some respects an attempt at making less civilized more savage more less cultured uh, yeah. other people you know uh, reveal something about uh, the opposite i would say it re- reveals something about the human the, the dehumanizer 
Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah. whatever is not like us, I mean, that's the root of the, you know, barbarian, like the word, right? I mean, in terms of yeah. the, the bar, bar, bar or whatever that, the, you know, they call the outsiders, the barbarians. And yeah. it's just people who don't do what we do. Yeah. And if you, if you identify with the barbarian and you identify with the outsider, you know, it's easy to be in. I think that uh, there is a, there's a compassionate aspect to it too, you know, because uh, if you feel that way yourself, you're usually more, more open to, to these, to other freaks and weirdos. To, uh, you know, uh, I know that I don't want to, I have no ambition of, of being completely square and, uh, you know, perfectly uh, well-adjusted to society. I'm, I'm moderately well-adjusted, so I can like, uh, I can keep myself sane and uh, maintain a romantic relationship and, uh, and, uh, and keep my job and so forth and hopefully not collapse into uh, some bizarre addiction of some kind, as many people do. Also a form of trollishness, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, well, people, I mean, uh, there's a certain level of well-adjusted, I think you have to be to be an adult and be productive. And also, um, you know, I've, I've known a lot of people who were just dead set on being outlaws all the time. Yeah. And uh, well, that good luck with that. But, uh, you know, if you, if you don't pay your taxes, then you don't, can't get a loan. And, you know, like there's all kinds of, and then, then you can't do anything. You can't make anything. You can't, your, your powers are very limited. So, yeah. you know, it's, it, you have to interface with the world in, in, a, in a smart way uh, to, to really get the best out of life because that's what you're trying to do, right? Yeah, some of the weirdest, most wizardly people I've ever met have actually been people who um, somehow have found a way to just game the system and appear as being extremely just well-adjusted and, and having great success at their jobs and stuff like that. When they're actually these occultist madmen, if you know that, know them right. properly, you know. But it's, yeah, that's, that's the paradox, you know, people who talk a lot, a lot about being, you know, about people who talk a lot about being you know magical practitioners are usually very bad at being it no it's uh <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah absolutely i mean uh, it's yeah. it's just kind of a, a weird hard style for people who feel powerless in many ways they you know like I, i'm yeah. I, i'm good at magic though okay well <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. yeah but at the same time i think that like 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 people like like you and i who have like podcasts and stuff like that mm -hmm. it's useful to like name drop those techniques and stuff like that just because you want to make people aware that they exist oh yeah yeah you i know, mean it's because so, they're you know yeah i mean ma magic is interesting it's it, I'm, I'm really interested in ritual i mean uh, one of the things and maybe you could talk to this because you, you've you've talked a little bit about it in your podcast um because I'll be, I've, I've been interested in ritual magic and, and so forth and teasing out what is a pagan ritual and what its purpose is or what you think it should be versus yeah. what is a cult, just a cult spell casting, what's sorcery and what, what's like a, what's a ritual to honor gods and what, what is something that was really just came from black magic. And, you know, and you mm. talked a little bit about, I think that when you talked about the Icelandic um, staves. Uh, and, and yeah, so yeah, yeah, possibly. Um, I don't know. I think that uh, that pagan rituals are in one, in one regard, it's about satisfying the gods and, and, and maintaining the contract between, uh, you know, mortals and, and divine entities. Mm -hmm. uh, because um, the gods are, you know, 
whether or not they care about us on an individual level, they do care about uh, what humanity is doing on a general uh, level. And they, they like to get acknowledgement, I, I do believe. And uh, they like to get credited and they like... Uh, they like they like that we check in on them every now and then, like a, like, like a parent what or something. What you doing? Yeah, how's it <laughs> yeah, going? Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like calling your grandma. But uh, <laughs> so I think that uh, that that's one aspect of it. Of social cohesion, of course. Uh, religious ritual creates a sense of community. That's huge. Uh, so, yeah, exactly. A that's huge. Of, one one of the things I found, you know, I've been conducting rituals for a few years and I used to do it every month and now I just do it occasionally uh, for a small group of people, occasionally a larger group of, group of people. And when I, I went through a period where I was trying to figure out, well, why, why do you guys want this? Yeah. What are they, what are they getting out of it? Cause I'm there to do a job. I'm the, in the priest role doing a job. What is my job? Mm. You know, what, what do they want? And one of the things that I found that I think that they are really doing is they've made some kind of connection with these myths. And they want to see it. If you're just, I just read a book about a myth and it's a, it's at home and it's, it's very personal to them. And I see, think, you know, other people go to church, other people do things. They, they want to see it in a big form. Yeah. You know, they want to see, they want to connect with it in, in a way with other people. And it gives them a sense of identity to be in an event where, where that happens. And because then they can take that back and that informs their own spirituality and their own connection to it is if they've, they've had some kind of experience with a group of people who all are on the same page. Cause that's actually gets really yeah. exciting when you get a bunch of uh, people who are all there for the same person purpose, doing the same thing. Um, that becomes a really powerful experience for people. And so they're kind of see, seeing the myths, you know, in, in a way that connects with the, the unconscious. I think a little bit more than they, they, they've looked at them in a very conscious way in an academic way, maybe not necessarily academic, but uh, uh, you know, whether they're sitting home reading or, or whatever, looking on Wikipedia or whatever they, wherever they came across these things. Uh, but uh, you know, it's see a ritual in real life. Uh, it makes it real. Yeah. You know, and that's, I think what they're really, what people really get out of it. Yeah. I remember when I was, uh, I don't know, sometimes, uh, when I would speak uh, to people who have kind of like they're, they're, they got some sort of alternate spirituality or something like that, it's often about contemplation, about thought and about personal experience and stuff mm -hmm. like that. I've always been more attracted to, to certain actions. Like it sounds cynical, of course, like, but so if somebody, like if I do my like weird, like, like dropping pennies down a crack in a wall or something like that, like uh, to appease like some, Chthonic uh, mafia entity that threatens my well-being, you know, paying the troll toll or whatever. Um, people ask me, "Do you really believe that stuff?" And I'm like, "I, I don't know if I believe in it. I think, you know, do I literally believe that like there's a, like in like some gnome sitting on the other side, like receiving these pennies? No, but that's beside the point. Belief is not very important to." Is, is irrelevant to why I do this. Uh, I think that the, the the action, the performance of it, is just as important as as any conviction that it is like true in the sense like that this coffee mug is true, or like I, or that I 
believe that there's wine in this glass or something. And it's, it's like, I cannot be sure of anything that I cannot see. And I have to doubt even that in some regards. Anyway, uh, the rituals just exist theoretically or like in people's fantasies or something like that. Right. And so when people see these things, especially when they're spectacular, like I used to do living history, I used to work in open air museums and stuff like that. So I would have like historical garments and stuff like that. And historical markets in Scandinavia are, uh, are huge, very popular. And mm -hmm. people come in from all over Europe and they attend them. And uh, in the evenings when all the tourists and visitors have gone home, everybody parties. But one of the things that many people do is that they use the evenings, at least like maybe one evening during the markets uh, and reserve it for like uh, rituals at some point in the night. Mm -hmm. Um, and so since I worked at one of the museums where this was, uh, where we had such a market, and I was also an academic working with Old Norse religion, many people, yeah, of course, also because I had, you know, I had expressed interest in this stuff and participated in this sort of thing, people would come up to me and they felt like this was kind of my turf. And they would say, like, is it okay if, are we allowed to perform a ritual here? Like, oh, yeah, knock yourself out. Like, <laughs> but, uh, or they would ask, like, can, maybe you could, you could do something, you know? And that's mm -hmm. like the priestly role, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, That, that, that academics also can have, but mm -hmm. especially like in that con context, because it was performative. Uh, so that people would request, like, can we do like a bloat or something? And I'd be like, yeah, sure. And then I would like turn around and I would immediately just like, what am I going to do, you know, and try to cook up some sort of ritual for the evening based on like whatever research I was doing or like something that I've been thinking about. And oftentimes it was really fucking hard to come up with something. And I would come up with some sort of improvised ritual and try to make it seem like this is like, it's natural. It's like, uh, it's like, a, it, I think William Butler Yeats has, has uh, his, in one of his poems, he talks about, like, it's Adam's Curse, I think, uh, a poem where he talks about like uh, how difficult it is to compose a poem, you know, because every word is measured, but it has to come out as if, as if it was just like something that you just came up with. It has to flow completely naturally, as totally. if it was just spontaneously. So trying to do that is very hard, especially when you're at these events and if you're nervous or you're drunk, which you often are, uh, it's been a lot of nonsense that I've said during these rituals. I've, like I've, I've conducted pagan weddings where I'm like, just, they ask me when I'm already <laughs> drunk and I'm like, I, I, everything I say is nonsense, you know? And I, I don't remember like what I'm supposed to say halfway through. And it was a disaster. But sometimes like when you sit there and you really take it seriously and you take people through a procession like there's a whole like rite of passage aspect mm -hmm. to it and there's fire and they come to a new spot maybe a spot they haven't been to on like at the site mm -hmm. they didn't know existed there and you raise like a pillar we would raise like a world pillar and we yeah. had a ritual nail we beat into the top of it and stuff like that mm -hmm. and and i i say like stuff like like uh, hereby i declare the like the the sacrificial peace and whoever breaks it shall be guilty in the wrath of the gods. And then you can just, you know, I can guarantee you it's completely silent afterwards. <laughs> it's, it's no more like, yeah, I want to bring this toast to like my, to like, I want to toast to Thor for my, 
my grandma and her dog, that sort of stuff. Like, right. Everybody's forced to think, rededicate. So mm -hmm. I would like, I would deliberately keep people away from like, uh, interacting too much with the ritual. Like it's a performance they have to watch. And it's like, yes. But then at the end, I did that like circle both thing that everybody loves, you know? Yeah. yeah, me. yeah. And That's everybody loves it. They would feel cheated if, if it didn't happen. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. But, it, but it's the release that comes after all that tension, especially like when I threatened them with the wrath of the gods. <laughs> right. Right. You know? but, but people would come up to me and like say like, well, this was, they actually had like, uh, it was like a religious experience and things like mm -hmm. that. And it's hard to, for you to see because you're, well, for the priest, the religious experience is that like, that this is work, you know? Yes. You have to do this precisely and correctly. And the other participants, they are just kind of there and just like either like disbelieving what they see or they're or like cynically just saying, ah, you know, or they, or they might be very absorbed. Right. And, uh, and some of those like people will come up to you afterwards and be like, wow, this was, I had like a profound experience. Like the, the, the hairs that the, on my neck were standing, you know, at attention and, yeah. and it's, it's a ritual that I cooked up in two hours, you know, in like on a tree stump trying to figure out something cool to do. But that was somewhat like in the spirit of like trying to take seriously, like, like the past and the past religion, but maybe a ritual that doesn't even resemble something that they would have done. Who even knows? But that's not well, yeah, important. We, we don't the, really the important know. Thing. Yeah, yeah, but it I mean, feels significant in the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's about intent as, as much yeah. as anything. I mean, if it, the, the thing is that if they're asking you to do it, they want to be there and yeah. they want to have an experience and they're already connected with these ideas in some way that they're important to them. And then, you know, by you taking an action and making that a reality for them, yeah, they're, they're experiencing the, everything that they have in their mind is coming together, you know, like for the... And yeah, they're connecting with something from the past. You know, yes. it's, 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 it's great. Even if it's totally fictional, if they think that they are like, and that's of course a big, you know, big question. Cause I'm, I've, I, I can be notoriously intolerant of people <laughs> who do, who do paganism very like, like without any critical eye whatsoever. and don't really bother like studying the sources seriously and stuff like that. Right. I can be very dismissive I can be very harsh. And I have very little patience, especially for people maybe who, who think that, um, you know, that uh, who are very dismissive of like academia, for example, even though I am, right. you know, from the inside sort of a cr critic of, of academic institutions as well, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. you know, I'm a shield for big university in some regards, but, um, but yeah, so, so I think that like I've, after my reconstructive phase, I, I was perhaps a little bit dismissive of it because I felt like it was kind of a dead end to just go full like reconstructionist. Yeah. Like the gods have to be something apart from like a, a bearded guy in a costume, you know? Right. It can't be like just a 10th century fashion statement, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and your whole like religion, your whole religiosity cannot be based on that pageantry alone, you know? No, absolutely. Pageantry, I guess. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The pageant. Yeah, that's. 
Yeah, I mean, that's where it becomes silly. It's like, well, you're alive now. And if, if, if you actually believe that the gods are alive, why do they need you to dress like uh, from a different period where, I mean, that was just the expression. I mean, if you look at Christian art going through the centuries, God looks like whatever they looked like at the given period. Yeah. You know, they, God has a different, you know, the, you know, Jesus and all the people in the Bible, all they all have different outfits, depending on whether it's a Renaissance or, you know, any other yeah. period. And, yeah, and critics of that approach often like are people who just don't really understand religion very well. Like they'll say that, uh, you know, uh, Jesus looks like an Anglo-Saxon. Obviously he didn't. Well, it's, that's not the point. If you go to Ethiopia, they, Jesus is a black guy. You know, it's like the point with like how they depict Jesus is that people are, have to be able to relate to him, you know? Yeah, exactly. Because Jesus, like the story of Jesus is that like God manifested in an old body, you know? And so it has to be a nobody that you can recognize yourself in, I guess. I think that must be. Yeah, the well, well you're trying to connect with some kind of an internal divinity. It's a, yeah. It has to, you have to be able to uh, figure that out. You know, you have to be able to, to picture that in your head, yeah. I think. And, and I think that makes it easier. I think with, like, yeah, I, to once again return to Scandifuturism and, and hope. Mm -hmm. and stuff like that there's of course like like the homeless people aren't just trolls there, there's also like a very like odinic thing about the homeless man on the subways oh they're wanderers they jump from train yeah. to train and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they have lore <laughs> they could uh, tell you riddles <laughs> yes and they and they go uh like they go through the subway system which is like this under underworldly travel as like well known from the mythology of course and I think in those cases, it's almost a benefit that the, it's the opposite, that it's somebody who you find a little bit revolting. You know, you're a little bit scared because like Odin always like seems to hide in low expectations. Like in Grimness Mall, he's like checking in on this king who used to be his, very rarely, like his, his, his foster son at some point. Yeah, yeah. And the king is just like, who's this old geezer? Let's torture him, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually have a friend like that. He might even listen to this. I don't know. Uh, you might even know who he is. His name's Cody. Uh, uh, he runs that uh, uh, Von der Vogel thing. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, and he he's he's a perfect example of that. And he has jumped trains, and he, he's tattooed all over his face, and just look, you know, like just, you wouldn't think anything. And then he's the most articulate speaker during or Sumble like that you'd ever heard. Just full-on uh, yeah. poetry comes out of his mouth, and it's just a, a big surprise. I love that. And that's the thing. Like, uh, yeah, the Van der Vogel stuff is cool. They got a good aesthetic going on as well, which is, as we said, it's, that's very important. But I, when I was a teenager, like, in Norway, like, bumming around the woods listening to, like, Dark Throne or whatever, you know, and, and sort of worshipping that aspect of... of uh, of my cultural heritage uh, and countercultural heritage, you might say, uh, I was like fantasizing about being in a place where I w where there were no roots in like in in the same way. Like uh, when you go to Norway, there are like burial mounds and ancient monuments and all sorts of stuff. And you know, when you study place names as well, that every place name tells a story that could be, you know, we don't know the narrative of the story, but there's fragments of a story that could be thousands of years old. And 
nonetheless, you know, all of this stuff, you know, all of brute norse is also in part uh, a reaction against the dissatisfaction that I felt with my culture as well. That I felt like there are things that could have been done better, or that uh, that I have been betrayed by the Norwegian uh, school system. You know, that they that the, the Norwegian society, which is loves to pat itself on the back, uh, couldn't you know, it told me in one hand, you know, you can do whatever the fuck you want. You can be whoever you want. You can, you don't think about anything else, just realize yourself. But then in the next moment, you know, they just kind of like, well, uh, you don't, well, we can't hire you because you don't have like this extremely niche education. There's no vision kind of right in the job market, for instance, one reason why I moved to the U S mm-hmm. um, and the, so that made me, you know, yearn for places where it seemed a little bit different. Like America has this like big, vast openness where if you do travel in one direction, like for, for a day or two, it's still the same. It's a little bit different. I will say that America has cultural diversity within itself. It does. America is, America is culturally interesting, even though people don't like to say it. I think that it, it is. It, it has the, the South is different. That's a different place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, but but America is people give it a bad rap, but I think that like folk culturally, uh, America is interesting, and it has these very like fantastic movements. It could only have occurred in America, almost like like the American hobo, like which is an institution, you know, train hopping, that sort of thing. And when I was like nineteen years old, oh, I would have given an arm and leg just to be able to. It's like like sneak onto an Amtrak or something like that and just like wake up in a different state. Yeah. I was lurking these crust punks that I befriended online and they would always like, they were always on some adventure, like, like through the desert or something like that. And I was so envious of them while I am here, like in some gloomy fjord in Norway, you know, and I right. pissing against the church wall or whatever, you know, <laughs> Because it was people. People often think like like that. Black metal is this, uh, uh, like the the whole thing with like black metal, which was important to me as a youth, is that it's a it's a revolt against the the mediocrity of Norwegian social democracy. Okay. It's it's like a middle class youth phenomenon. Everybody likes to think that like it's a that it's a revolt against some, a, a very like big force. People talk about like yeah, how there are like metalheads in Iran and Colombia and stuff like that. They have real problems. Like they can, they can get like stabbed for the shit that they do, you know, right. get, get, get beaten up by the police and whatnot. That's not a risk in Norway. You know, the big innovators in Norwegian black metal bands were bored teens from middle-class families for the most part. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's like punk or that. like, you know, it's yeah. all those, yeah, youth movements are, tend to be like that, yeah. It was a, like, and the reason why the church was so, like, was so reviled in, in black metal was in part, I think, because it represents, like, the, the milk toastness of Norwegian polite society. Mm. It's, like, it's, it's not that the church is, like, an all-powerful institution that suppresses you. It's that the church was absolutely toothless. Like mm. so many other things, and so it's like the this desire to to kind of break out of the of that you know monotony and, and create something that has more 
more color and hence also sympathizes with kind of the darker aspects of its own folklore the trolls and and the deep past uh, paganism which is almost had like in in Norwegian religious education in school and stuff like that, like paganism almost had like the satanic connotation. Well, and you can see that in the, in the kind of black metal culture and you, you see a lot of uh, that's bled really because, you know, there's a pathway into Othotru and, and uh, any kind of paganism, basically Satanism <laughs> or, or black metal <laughs> or both. Yeah. <laughs> and if people, yeah. For one way, and I mean, I, I've done the same thing in a weird way. I mean, I wasn't the black metal guy, I was the guy. but uh, uh, <laughs> it, it, I was always the nice guy Satanist. So I was never really a good Satanist, but uh, it, <laughs> <laughs> I'm too nice. But uh, it, it, and I'm too much of a fan of order. But it's you can see that influence there, and and, and obviously that does come from a little bit of a background of uh, pagan roots being literally satanized i mean that's what mm -hmm. that's what obviously you know your your gods are evil we we've conquered this land i mean that's what you do just generally you conquer the land your gods are evil ours are good let's get on that page yeah. you know i mean that's what happens but i, I wonder how much of, the, of a lot of uh you know modern pagan imagery and so forth you know it's so goth in a way it's like yeah they're trying to they're trying to evoke this darkness and this evilness and whatever and i wonder if that's you know just a holdover from uh, really that idea that these gods are evil because uh, you know at some point yeah they're not you know like that's you, you there's some i always say there's some very olympian things about like even odin like just even from the stories and then you don't know how, where that came yeah. from or whatever, but uh, you know, there's very, obviously you still have these people in shining temples and so forth. And, and, and uh, there's a disconnect there. It's not all evil trickster stuff. It's that's, yeah. that's funny. I have this, uh, one of my best friends in, in Norway is this, uh, this punk anarchist guy um, who's, uh, who's just, I think that he was actually one of the first people I know who, uh who i could speak uh to people about you with okay because he was like i remember we were walking uh we were walking in the mountains once and he was talking about he was listening to the podcast i think it was was you like the early episodes because you had i did a like, season some, a while back yeah 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 uh so so i remember he was one of the first people uh, i i knew to bring you up actually uh which is kind of you know kind of funny but this guy is uh he's like 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 complete like anarchist like far left on anarchist is like the the guy with the beard and like the the cartoon bomb in his hand kind of like yeah, <laughs> ideology you know right right and he's and uh, and this guy is um I was so hung up on the cartoonish <laughs> image of him that I forgot. I lost my trail of thought. Uh, what was I talking about right before there? Uh, the um, uh, you said that he mentioned me and he was listening to podcasts from the early season or something like that. Yeah, but before that, uh, oh. I take we're talking take about the ago. Satanism and black metal and uh, yes, yeah, this guy. So he one time, you know, because. Uh, I think people people you know knew that I was really into Vikings 
and I was uh, studied, uh, I was kind of pagan, you know, and I, I studied Old Norse and stuff like that. So they thought that I was just this kind of like Viking metal bro. Right, like right. That, you know, and so they, so this is kind of like before we actually got like, became proper friends. He came up to me at a concert and uh, he showed me his button. He had a button on his lapel or something. And it was like a Thor's hammer with like a, like a forbidden sign, like a red circle and like a lot over the that and he said right. what do you think about this and it took me by, by such surprise that i like burst out laughing like like if you think about it like uh, no thunder god like, <laughs> yeah yeah so it's like uh so we started like thinking about like inverted thor's hammers uh like all sorts of like like spins on this right and we just kind of flew. like at some point there's like uh like transcendentally speaking, the four's hammer is interchangeable with the cross. Maybe not in like philosophical content, but if you're talking dualistically, you know, mm -hmm. uh, of course, uh, people, you know, juxtapose those, but of course it's not like, it's not like the, the, the Christian medieval, you know, Anglo-Saxon and like they have, totally inverted like uh, ideas about what is good like what is a good life you know yeah they both want to like uh, like uh, you know uh, raise their kids properly uh, uh you know be decent people and things like that and they have different they have may have a different set of ethics that they follow or whatever you know uh, mm -hmm. to a certain degree but and maybe they're you know it's because you know their transcendental worldview is different but uh but there's this like it, it was a brilliant joke and comment, I think, about about how people tend to to see paganism as this anti antithesis of Christianity, you know, right? Rather than just like a more historical enemy or something like that. Like it's, you know, I don't mean to say that the the two are interchangeable. You might as well be this or that, or like I I don't care, of course, whatever you are, but right. um, but it's uh, that was a funny thing anyway, and that's why. If you've ever seen the Brute North Teespring store, I don't mean to plug that. But, uh, <laughs> but I do. I do have a Teespring store. But it happens to be uh, at blah 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 dot com. And, <laughs> and, and, and I and I do have a, a Thor's hammer d design with that, like with that forbidden thing over. Right. And I just put it there as a as a joke, like as a nod to my friend. And if there's one design that I got get inquiries from, it's that. And it's not easy. You can't go on my Teespring and just send me an email from there. You have to go to brutenorse.com and find the contact form and write in your name and email and like write this message. And people will actually do this. They will go there, you know, and say, what is up with this t-shirt? Like they will say stuff like that. Yeah. So it clearly is kind of triggering people, which I guess is, I, I want people to just see it and be like, what the fuck is that? Like, Oh, sure. Well, it seems really out of context. Like, uh, you know, obviously like <laughs> yeah. with what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah. So, so it was more a, a social experiment, experiment maybe. And uh, I think yeah, there's some, there's some like black metal musicians or something that, that a couple of those, which goes full circle. Cause I think the original pin was distributed through a black metal label, but, um, but yeah, I don't know. I think that, yeah, it's, it's weird. Cause there wasn't like a backlash against paganism within black metal when it was at its most nihilistic too which is kind of silly as well like 
this this idea that like black metal has to be anti any form of spirituality whatsoever is totally idiotic i think you know it's there's a, there's a lot of childishness in that genre, generally speaking. Like, there's a lot of half-baked philosophies. Yeah, I never, I was never into it when I was a kid. I never even heard of it, really. I mean, I think maybe I'm too old to have heard, I guess not. But uh, yeah. it, it was probably pretty new when I was a kid. But uh, I, I think, uh, yeah, to me, I mean, I tried to get into it because my friends were into it. Uh, and I just couldn't. Because I, I think it is a young person's thing to a certain extent, because uh, it's a lot of youthful rebellion in that, and uh, you know, then it, it, come, it come, kind of becomes like man of war, like if you're familiar yeah. with man of war, <laughs> you, know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, like that. there's a there's yeah. a certain thing you know, where it becomes like okay, calm down, son, uh, you know, it's you're not that different, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's uh, it. it there, there's definitely it becomes a little bit comedic in sophomoric in a, in a way but that's yeah. that's you know I, I i'm of the mind i i don't really care what people music even i there's this big thing yeah. with music scenes where people judge each other by their music scene which yeah. i think is a very high school kind of you know perspective <laughs> you know yeah, like very, I, very much so yeah yeah but people do that like all through their adult lives well we don't want that in our scene really you're you're 45 calm down you know like who cares and you have also have those who like they 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 have like they come from a scene or something like that and then they will demonstrate that they're not or like that they're that they're different by you know name dropping all the weird genres that they they also listen to you know right. it'd be like oh I'm, I'm not just into black metal i listen to like french french 60s girl pop like, <laughs> that was me in my early 20s by the way. Like, right. i'd be like, I'd be like yeah, listening to serge gansborg and burzen like that was like what i nice so so but you know and i made myself guilty of my own critique but uh but uh but yeah no you know as you mature all of that that shit becomes less and less important of course you know unless unless you're some kind of mental dwarf i suppose yeah, yeah, but um, yeah. Well, there's a lot of that in the world as well. But. <laughs> yeah, we, the world needs dwarves too, you know. Yeah, exactly. yeah. The, the world needs dwarves. I'll just make that the title of this podcast. Uh, but <laughs> the world needs dwarves. <laughs> what, what would you say? That was actually a good entry. Uh, uh, something I wanted to ask you. Uh, the Serge Gainsbourg was it was interesting because I know who that is, and that, that's. Uh, um, what are some of your artistic influences? What what styles? Uh, who are some of the artists that you like that are kind of influencing your uh, interpretation of all this? Um, obviously, one of my big ones must be uh, Theodor Kittelsen. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, he's uh, he's a Norwegian illustrator. He he uh, illustrated a lot of satirical magazines. A lot of uh, he drew a lot of caricatures. Uh, but he he he's most famous for his uh, uh, drawings of trolls and Norwegian folklore and also a whole series about a uh, series of depictions and imaginings uh, based on the, the big Norwegian national trauma which was the Black Death of 1349. Mm -hmm. So that guy uh, has been a big influence on me just because uh, when I see uh, his stuff it feels close to home and that's not necessarily because like 
I grew up in the sort of landscape that he depicted. It's just that that's like culturally encoded uh, in me in a way. So there's that. I'm very um, inspired actually by a lot of uh, surrealist art. I used to do uh, performance art and I used to do lectures as a form of academic lectures as a form of art performance. Uh, collaborating with a friend of mine who is a visual artist by the name of Rasmus Hungnes. Mm -hmm. And uh, he would use me, like he would have these surrealist art exhibits where he would like turn a library into a jungle or something like that. Like it sounds kind of basic at first, but like, but he, he would make these very bizarre kind of landscapes with this strange elevator music. And he would have me like uh, do, a, do a talk about like about occultism and Norse mythology or something where I draw like imaginary lines. Like I had like a talk about what I called North sea voodoo at some point. Uh -huh. And this was like before I had developed a sense of what Scandifuturism was. I didn't have that term cooked up, but it was clearly like one of my first experiments in that regard. Mm. So I did a lot of that stuff. I curated an art show uh, where I deliberately uh, made everybody, uh, like the whole point with the art show was that it was based on the meat of poetry. Okay. But if anybody came in there looking for like Norse art and like dragons styles and animal art and stuff like that, they would see none of it. So I would use the content uh, as I saw it, but not the medium, not the expression of Norse art itself. And so scholic poetry, uh, surrealism, I had a lot of, uh, uh, I was lucky enough uh, to be part of a, of a small academic clique, you might say, uh, when I was studying in Bergen, Norway, uh, where I had some of my best mentors were kind of the people who were not tenured at the university, but had PhDs from there, but for whichever reason did not have jobs there anymore or like, yeah. So those were people who were kind of embittered uh, very forward-thinking, uh, creative people who thought outside of the box and and always told me to just kind of like be very skeptical of any promises that like professors would make you or like hey, like don't trust them if they, like they're stringing you along for this or that like they 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 want to uh, they just want a certain number of exams or whatever to to. Uh, to to fulfill certain like uh, bureaucratic criteria of the university system and stuff like that. You got to think for yourself. And this, my supervisor at some point said, to be a Norse philologist is like being an artist. You have to find other ways of making a living sometimes. Mm. And at some point, like when I was very disillusioned with academia, I just thought, why not just be an artist? Yeah. Yeah. So like, um, it's kind of hard to say because I think that I'm very inspired by like just kind of speculative realism, cyberpunk aesthetics, um, a lot of like weird like like uh, '80s countercultural figures like like Genesis P. Orridge and stuff like that. Okay. I guess you know mm -hmm. uh, people who thought kind of had strange ideas about things and and used like their material in unorthodox ways um and some of some of my academic um between scholic poetry and like and and surreal surrealist arts 
like it sounds uh, it sounds like uh, something that doesn't occur to many people very easily like the that uh, Salvador Dali for instance would have anything in common with uh, with an iron age warrior poet because their worldviews are certainly very different from each other sure. their lifestyles are different mm-hmm. um, but what uh, what some of the surrealists have in common with the scholic poets is that they analyze nature and they analyze phenomenon and substance and things and they try to distill it down to like what is the essence of this like and how can i reproduce this in poetry without imitating nature in a naturalistic way so they have like an a naturalistic depiction that pays tribute to nature without actually painting some without actually creating a natural image it creates mm. surrealist images. So uh, the bottom of the sea is like a, like a hilly meadow or something. And whales are like, are like cows grazing on the hills or whatever, you know? Right. Things like that. Or as I used in an example I used in the latest episode, uh, the battlefield full of blood and guts and human trauma and the most terrible place that many people can imagine finding themselves, you know, to, from the perspective of a raven, for example, or a wolf or any like other, like carrion eating animal, this is very pleasant. It's a wonderful, like it's a feast. It's a, it's oh, yeah. a cornucopia of everything that they find nice and associate with positivity. If they, if they would have such a concept, you know? Yeah. Um, so um, so I was just like, I found that, that stuff to be very profound and maybe the key to actually understanding how uh, pre-Christian people fought in a way. And the scholic poetry is also tremendously mischievous. You know, it's, it's full, of, full of jokes and puns. And Norse mythology also has the same. It's full of like little clever jokes okay. uh, and, like, and like very serious things just like intermingled with, uh, with, with very very crude material sometimes like it's very burlesque and uh, i i associate that with kind of a more like old timey organic outlook of the world i think that that uh, if you want to 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 live a sane life that is in in any way in balance uh with how the world works it has to be somewhat humorous in in a sort of grotesque way sometimes you have to make peace with the way that 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 the world is actually quite harsh the best way of doing that is by you know playing around with inversions and and jokes and humor yeah i i I actually often think that that a lot of culture comes from jokes when i've hung out when i've tried to create groups of men and and you start that's actually kind of where culture starts where you start to differentiate is that you get inside jokes and then your inside jokes have inside jokes. And then sooner or later you get to a point where you could be talking and no one else would know if you aren't in the group, no one knows what you're talking about. Yeah. And it just become plays on words, you know, and the way the English do with their, uh, their words or plays on words or plays on words. Uh, It's uh, very much the same thing. Uh, I think that, that culture differentiates by a lot of times a bunch of guys sitting around a fire telling jokes and then, you know, 
three weeks go by and their jokes are incomprehensible to everyone else. Yeah. A good, uh, one of the things there is like, well, another way of putting this is like you have the Apollonian and the Dionysian. Yes. You know, the, you know, if you take that like from a classical perspective, both of these things have to exist. And you also have like the Olympian and the Chthonian, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, hermeticists might say like as above, so below, you know, you can't have one without the other in, in old Norse, uh, culture. And this might be an innovation of old Norse culture, but it's, it's probably based on very, very old things, you know, in old Norse, you often see, especially with gods like Odin, it's kind of Apollo and Dionysus in one. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah there, there's yeah. no differentiation. They're not two different isolated characters. It's not like right. like, like Apollo playing his lyre or whatever. Like it's Odin, odd. It, Odin is the king and he's like the, the street urchin. Well, yeah, it's like the Doom yeah. and Zeal thing. Like he's the, he's the mad king and the just king at the same time. Kind of. Yes, well, exactly. Yeah, because you don't have the, the tear is like a small myth. But then you have o, Odin is both things all the time, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Makes him an interesting yeah, I, character, which is atypical. You don't find that in a lot of other religions for the, that guy to be both. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that is, uh, it is very important. And I see that also like in, in uh, Norwegian folk culture as well. People like to attribute that to the fact that there was, uh, since the Middle Ages at least, there's never really been an indigenous aristocracy in Norway, apart from like uh, very big landowning farmers, for instance, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was no upper class. It was a peasant society, which is part, partially a national myth, but um, but one that is flattering to Norwegians who like to think of themselves as kind of like, you know, simple people who are not too lofty or whatever. You know? But uh, but uh, the it resonated with me because peasant culture is often very burlesque. You know, it's it doesn't have any illusion that it's necessarily better than it is. But as we know, like courtly culture as well is, is full of these uh full of dirty jokes and uh and 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 uh and things that people who are like uh, deprived of that dionysian aspect just find bad taste you know they they like the like the kind of church lady sort of mentality you know yeah 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 when they hear a swear word you know, like uh I don't even know if they're Apollonian. I just think that they're stifled. But <laughs> yeah, no, that's just true. It's it's, it's, an, it's a very unsympathetic reading uh, yeah. of, of the Apollonian, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, no, it's I because think, yeah. Uh, I am I'm perhaps a little bit deprived of of Apollonian qualities, perhaps apart from my like stringent support of like academic theory. But I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, lo- I love the idea of, of uh, some of the ar- artistic things that you've done. Uh, I, I'm an art nerd uh, like that. I mean, I was always into to, to Matthew Barney, actually. When, that was my coming of age. Was He was still showing in New York and stuff like that. And I went to yeah. some of the shows where you see the films and he's, you know, the, the, dressed up, you know, with like a mythical creature and, and uh, you know, makes the sets and, the, you know, all the work that went into that. Uh, that the, his work is, is really interesting. And, you know, like, oh, you're making your own myths in, in the real world, which is kind of cool. But I, I like the idea of what you're doing, of yeah. it, it taking uh, the idea of uh, like that uh, uh, Mead exhibit 
where, where yeah. you're taking the concept and you're talking about the concept rather than just like, here's a bunch of pictures of cups of mead or like, you know, Odin as an eagle, uh, you know, or if, you know, here's, yeah. here's the concept. And I think that that's, I, contemporary art gets a kind of a bad rap. It, it I think does, from yeah. a lot of people. And I think there's a lot of interesting thought that happens. I, it, maybe in a good way, it gets a bad rap because a lot of the people who are doing it kind of suck. But like, you know, yeah. or the, you know, the presenters of it or whatever, museum culture kind of sucks in a way, I mean, especially, you know, in America, the, the people associated with- There's a lot of bad art out there. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of bad art. And there's a lot of just, especially, you know, there's, you know, I once, you know, uh, to school, and, you know, you almost learn how to write as in, in Marxist theory. <laughs> here's, how, yeah. here's how to describe my art, which is, you know, uh, uh, piece on a canvas is in terms of like class warfare you know yeah. it becomes kind of like that's the the norm for a lot of that which is unfortunate because uh, you know you can make great art that doesn't that isn't like that yeah i think that a lot of them it's, it's sad because i've like uh, i never went to art school myself but i but i know a lot of people who did and of course they they are combative because they are in a constant like their their whole field like their whole livelihood is under constant bombardment critics you know they're constantly oh, yeah. so they're on the guard all the time and they always feel a severe need to to defend themselves in every given situation you know uh and sometimes that that results in kind of sometimes kind of comical arguments i had a lot of arguments with people at like arts like kind of like art gallery kind of parties and and like art school sort of like rave sort of situations where i get drunk and i ramble on about like how how scaldic poetry was superior to uh, to, to modern freeform poetry because you know it, it's such a technical like it demands so much from the listener and the participants on all sides you know mm -hmm. and so they would like their only retort would be stuff like but oh uh, yeah you know because they they're not they don't know anything about scaldic poetry they don't know any about anything about ancient history so they're like uh, but they feel attacked so they feel the need to say no actually like in the past people were Dumb because they needed all those rules clever that they can just like take like, like a piece of shit on a canvas or something like that and, and like right. and like read all this meaning into it. I said people in the past were completely capable of doing that as well but like things don't really have any meaning unless if they exist just in a vacuum if one person is doing it it exists like without any social context like right. It's not that like 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 contemporary art in itself is is bad. A lot of it is good. I, I like a lot of it. Uh, I like a lot of uh, artists and a lot of writers that 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 some some people these days consider utterly degenerate. You know, but nonetheless, you know there is. Uh, somewhere in the middle here there is there there is wisdom and you know a stroke of sanity you know absolutely absolutely i mean that, that anyway but we should probably wrap up here soon because yeah. I'm, I'm just really interested in this conversation so i just i, I think what, i think i've done sure. <laughs> i think i've done like a, a we might be at like an hour and a half two hours at this point but uh uh i just wanted to keep it going because it's really interesting to me personally uh but yeah, okay, yeah. i, I want to go to an art exhibit that's about the meat of poetry that isn't the meat of poetry <laughs> that that sounds fantastic yeah uh, that's the kind I, of stuff i wish there was more of and people being creative in that way rather than trying to make uh whatever uh you know viking snuggies 
<laughs> I should say, yeah, it's I don't I don't want to I don't want to like draw this out uh, any more than it has to. But uh, right. but one thing that uh, probably I should say about that art exhibit is that most of the people, while most of the people who came there probably didn't under, have a clue about what it was about. Right. I am probably the only person present there who who saw everything and thought, ah, this makes sense. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So so uh, who am I? Like I cannot. I'm probably a very bad critic of my own art because i probably thought it was fantastic or whatever but yeah that and i think that to many people <laughs> the main performance at that exhibit was probably uh like modern performance art in a nutshell in one regard because yeah. i would what did I you did pull like, anything out of your vagina? <laughs> I did not. I don't have one, so I couldn't. But, uh, <laughs> I know. That's what I always think about when, it, you know. But other things came out of my body. Uh, so okay. the, so the, uh, so what happened was like I did this, the uh, this big ritual which was inspired by Greek mystery cult, and awesome. I had this big like I had this like, um, at the time I was also like kind of dabbling like like Crowley and magic, and so I had like okay. this. This, this black robe and stuff like that. And uh, so I did this. Uh, so I had a, you know, a friend helping me. She, she was a wonderful costume designer and stuff like that. So we were performing kind of like the, the dichotomy between like giants and God, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and we did this ritual or we, or actually we're more like Asia and Vanir. So Asia Vanir war okay. ended. So it's the peace ceremony where we spit, you know? And so what I did was that I, I create, I made some, some sort of bread and I made all of the audience members like chew this bread. And then I forced them like spit it back out. You, you spit it back into this container now. Like, so I forced everybody to, to spit back into the container. It was full of this bready gunk. Okay. Uh, and this ties directly into some academic research that I did about uh, uh, Iron Age drinking culture, because I argue mm -hmm. that the chew and spit method, as they do in South America and did in Asia and Africa, might have been practiced in Scandinavia as well at some point. Uh, and that is, ref that is directly tied to the spitting in the origin, you know, of the meta poetry. Anyway, so I make them spit all of this back. At this point, like I changed like my costume and don like this, this sandbag mask with like the eyes cut out, and I got like a horn that looks like a beak on the front and like eagle feathers and stuff. Okay. And I have this. As we, I quote Ezra Pound at some point, I say, "The gods have not returned; they never left us." And uh, I do this like magic trick stage performance where I changed, I swapped the, the bowl of gunk for a bowl of like, of, of mead, basically like this mead punch. Right. That I, that in an identical container. So those who are kind of like not paying, not really paying attention, they think that it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. So pour it into like this big punch bowl full of ice. And I started like serving it in these Dixie cups back to people. And some people flat left the performance at that point. <laughs> they, didn't want, they, didn't, they didn't want to have any part of it, uh, which I thought was, you know, that, you know, very, very like modern arts take on it. But it was like, yes, that mean, it must mean that I've done something right, you know? Yeah, that's so, fantastic. 
yes, but that actually, uh, um, uh, it actually worked. I took the, took the gunk home and I actually fermented it into a beer. I did not drink it. Uh, but the whole process of making it gave me a cold. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I can say that much. Yeah. Cool. So that was my, my brief venture into the world of contemporary arts anyway. No, I, that, that's like I said, that's the kind of stuff I would love to see more of, uh, you know, people doing, doing something new. I mean, you mentioned Ezra Pound, he's famous for that, uh, slogan, uh, make it new. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a, it's, it's definitely, that's exciting. You know, when people yeah. are doing something like that, that's exciting, uh, rather than just kind of rehashing old material forever, uh, it, but not adding anything to it. Uh, well that's, yeah, I mean, yeah, you add, every, you gotta add something to the bowl, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> add something yeah. to the bowl yes. all right man well I, i'm gonna i'm gonna wrap this up but uh, obviously i'll put some uh, links to your uh podcast and i hope everybody checks it out uh I, the, the valhalla one was thoroughly entertaining i laughed at the beginning and then uh there was tons of good information i don't think there's a better podcast about valhalla i've ever heard so uh that's pretty thank awesome. you very much yeah yeah so it, it was great talking to you man and uh i Till next time.